Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Psalm 42 and 43 together. Uh, but let's go before our Father, ask Him for His help this morning. Heavenly Father, send out Your light and Your truth. Let them lead us this morning. Let them bring us into Your holy presence. God, we believe You have made known to us the path of life. In Your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at Your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Yet, many of us this morning, Father, many of us approach You. We have heavy hearts. Many of us are walking through valleys of darkness, depression. We're sick, injured, afflicted, and what we need most of all is to hear Your truth, to see Your light, So we ask, pour out your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of light, the spirit of truth. And we need you as we search the scriptures, the scriptures you inspired. We ask that you would help us to learn, that you would give us hope, that you would focus our minds and our eyes on the reading and the teaching of the word this morning. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who saves us from our sin and brings us back into your presence, O God. Amen. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. This summer, uh, we are starting a series on the Psalms. Uh, Chad actually started the series last week. I intended to preach this sermon last week, but I got violently ill on Saturday night. So uh, great to be back with you. And this summer, we're going to be looking at 12 Psalms, 12 Psalms over the course of three months. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. If you were to open the middle of your Bible or just let it fall open, there is a good chance it would just fall open to the Psalms. It's the largest book in the Bible, and it's a collection of 150 Psalms, 150 songs divided into five different books. These songs were written by at least a dozen different authors. They were written over the course of about a thousand years. And these songs, they they span an extensive range of human emotion. It's like a panorama of human emotionship in relation to God. That's what the Psalms are like. And in that way, these Psalms are a lot different from contemporary music or contemporary songs that we hear today. In fact, when I drive my kids to school in the morning during school year, we listen to Cozy 101 on the way in, and we listen to total, Totally Trivial Trivia, where they ask, you know, trivia questions, and people call in to answer. And between the answers, they'll play contemporary and 80s and 90s pop music. And it's very apparent, it's very apparent as you're listening to these songs that the focus of contemporary pop songs today is very narrow. You hear either songs about sex or songs about sex, and that's it. Now, occasionally, very occasionally, you will hear songs about sex, but outside of that, there's really no other song. In that way, the Psalms, these 150 songs inspired by God, they They are so radically different. You witness a much more extensive range, a panorama of emotions, a panorama of the human experience with God. That's why John Calvin, the 16th century pastor, teacher, he referred to the Psalms as the anatomy of all parts of the human soul. If you want to know what the human soul is like, open up the Psalms 
and read them. So when you're reading the Psalms, it's not uncommon to come across songs of thanksgiving, songs of praise, when life is good, when there is communion with God, when it seems like things are going right, when there are blessings, when there's peace in your life. It's not uncommon to hear songs of wisdom, songs intended to instruct the people of God as they sing out to follow God, to live for God, songs that reaffirm the basic truths of who God is, who we are, what he's done for us. It's not uncommon to come across songs of remembrance that help people recall throughout their life the work of God in the past, the promises of God in the past, when he with a mighty arm did great things for the people of God. It's also not uncommon to come across songs like our song this morning, Songs of Lament. These are songs of depression, songs of grief, misery, turmoil, anxiety, fear, songs for when it feels like you are here and God is all the way over here, miles apart. In fact, book two of the Psalms, the book we're going to be studying this summer, opens with a song of lament. And we begin Psalm 42, reading through Psalm 43. Listen to how this person describes their soul, this lamentation before God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy as with deadly as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So this book, book two of the Psalms, opens up with spiritual depression, with lament. And notice, it's important to notice who is actually writing this psalm of lament. Writing Psalms 42 and 43. You see this in the superscription. This is kind of the title before the psalm. You know, by looking at this, who wrote this? It says that this psalm was written to be sung, so it's written to the choir master. And it's called a maskal. That's probably a musical term lost on us today. But it's a maskal of the sons of Korah. That's important. The sons of Korah. The Korahites had an important role in the life of Israel. See, when David, the great king of Israel, ascended to his position as king and he was anointed king over all Israel, one of his first orders of business as king was to reestablish worship in Israel. That was his objective. First order of business, reestablish worship. Because when God had created the world, God dwelt at the center of his creation. God was present with his people. Adam and Eve, the first creatures made by God, made in God's image, they had the privilege of standing before the presence of God continually to worship him in fullness and in joy and in praise. But that's not how the world had treated worship since the Garden of Eden. Even among the people of God, they had neglected the worship of God. Israel, for centuries before the rise of David, the people of God had slipped into worship of idol, of false gods. Instead of worshiping the true God, they started looking to the nations around them. Nations like the Amalekites, the Moabites, the every other bites. And they started worshiping the gods around them like Asherah and Molech, gods like Baal. For centuries, they had disregarded the appointed seasons of worship that God had laid down in Scripture, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Booths. Those weren't a big deal. Neglected those. What's more, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, for centuries, the people utterly neglected the Ark of God. The place where God dwelt visibly and tangibly with the people of God, the ark, where if you know the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, they're traveling through the wilderness and they're being led by the glory cloud of God. God's glorious presence leading them through the wilderness descended into the ark of the covenant of God, the meeting place where if they wanted to see God, tangibly be in his presence, they could go to the ark of God. That's where his presence was on full display and they just completely neglected it. You see this as you read Throughout the history of Israel, at times the ark is in this place called Shiloh, an area in Samaria, about 40 or so miles north of Jerusalem for a time. The ark was just stolen by the Philistines, stolen by the Philistines and brought to Ashdod, and not many people gave it second thought. For hundreds of years, it then got housed at a place called kiriath Jerium. It's just going here and there, there and here, and it's just completely neglected, and nobody seems to care. Nobody cares that the ark of God is just traveling around. So one of his first orders of business, what David does is he decides to reestablish worship. He brings the ark of God back to the center where it belongs, back to the center in Jerusalem, so that just like Eden... 
God would again dwell in the midst of his people. His presence would be at the center of the people of God. And it's at this point in the history of Israel that David appoints these men, the sons of Korah, Korahites, to sing before God, to be doorkeepers before God, to play instruments before God, to ensure that God's worship would never again be neglected. True worship reestablished with these Korahites having the privilege to stand in the presence of God. And it's very instructive. Here's what I want you to see here. This is a psalm of lament. And you have these Korahites who continually stand before the presence of God. And the very first song that comes out of their lips is not a song of thanksgiving and confidence. It's not a song of praise. No, the very first song that opens up book two of the Psalter is a psalm of lament, a psalm of spiritual depression. That's instructive because that's not how we often think about spirituality or spiritual persons today. In fact, to be a spiritual person today usually entails that your life is just getting better and better and better. Right? The, the life of a spiritual person, there's no hard edges. It's not rough. It's kind of like, like a flannel gram. You remember flannel grams? Right? Nice, fuzzy, warm. You can make maybe a little illustration of David and Goliath. But, you know, no hard edges, no anxiety, no fear, no doubt. No, as a spiritual person, you become just more and more peaceful, more and more tranquil, tranquil more and more moral. Good for you. More and more successful, more and more positive in your thinking and outlook. In fact, if you do lament, you must be doing something wrong spiritually. In fact, if you do lament, if you do lament, you get looked at askance, thinking, yeah, that person must not be doing this Christian thing right. And you see how this view of spirituality has really changed in our culture. All you have to do, just, just go back a couple hundred years and see the types of books that people wrote about what it was like being a Christian. My kids and I, we just finished uh, the children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. We're actually giving this book out for free for families. You can pick it up here uh, by going downstairs after the service. And that book was written by John Bunyan. It's a 300-page book about what it's like to live the Christian journey. It's the story of a man named Christian on his walk toward the celestial city to finally be with the great king who created heaven and earth. But on the way, in his journey, it's spiritually grueling. Christian, on his way to the celestial city, faces all these trials and hardships and seasons of lamentation. And on his journey, he encounters other characters, characters like despair, doubt, fearing, feeble, contrite, timorous, shame, grief. John Bunyan knew this panorama of emotions were part and parcel of what it meant to follow God in a broken and fallen world. Lament is not unspiritual. No, it is truly spiritual. The reason Christian encountered all these characters is because that is what true spirituality is. Compare that with books about spirituality today. These are just titles of books that are published today. Live your best life now. 
overcoming every problem. Powerful thinking. Your greater is coming. Peaceful on purpose. The power to remain calm, strong, and confident in every season. Empty out the negative. Experience the impossible. Based on these titles, right? To be a spiritual person means if you're lamenting, well, you must be doing something wrong. You should be living your best life now. You should be overcoming every problem. You should be knowing that your greater is coming if you just empty out the negative. To follow God means you're calm, strong, confident. Well, I'm sorry, that's just not reality. In fact, if you are spiritual, you're going to look a lot like the sons of Korah. They obviously didn't read your best life now. You see, here are men who stand day and night before the presence of Almighty God, and their first song is a song of lament. A song of spiritual depression. And you're going to see as we look deeper into this psalm. First they outline the condition. What does spiritual depression look like? They're going to get at kind of what their root cause is. And also not leave us there. They're going to outline the cure to spiritual depression as well. And right away, look again. Verse 1 of Psalm chapter 42. Book 2 of the Psalms open. And we run into this psalmist in the throes of spiritual depression. And look at how he describes spiritual depression. Verse one, he has this image of a deer and it's this haunting image because this deer has been hunted, been hunted day and night through the arid desert wilderness, chased back and forth, trying to be attacked. And now that the deer is famished, he's panting for water, thirsting, just exhausted. And just as the deer approaches a familiar stream, Looking to quench the thirst, he he looks and bends down and there's nothing. The stream is completely dried up. The psalmist says, that's what my soul is like before God. My soul is dry, it's panting for God, searching for water like a deer, and there's nothing, no response, nothing to quench my thirst. And he says it's even worse than that. It's not just his thirst, he says he's hungry as well, starving in fact. In verse 3 he says, I can't eat. The only thing I've had to eat day and night are my tears. My soul is so plagued that I can't even enjoy a meal. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where you are so anxious or you are so worried, overwhelmed that you can't eat. You get that knot in your stomach and it doesn't matter if somebody gives you a five-course meal that's cooked by Chef Ramsay himself. You just can't get yourself to eat it. You're just so overwhelmed and anxious You're here, and God's over here. I've shared this before, but just about three and a half years ago or so, uh, I struggled with panic attacks and depression. And so I lay my head down at night when we usually go to sleep around, you know, 7.30 or so. And uh, (laughs) there'd be nights where Oh, I'd just be so anxious, so consumed with thoughts of the next day or obligations that I had or deadlines I had to meet. I would be so anxious that I'd fall asleep and then two hours later be jolted awake in the middle of the night in a sweatful panic. And I'd pray, I'd ask God, God, why don't you end this? Why can't I sleep? I'd make it through the night. I'd sit down at a meal with my family and I couldn't eat. My thoughts, my energy, my soul was completely spent. I was exhausted. It felt like I was drowning. 
The psalmist here says that's actually a good summary of what spiritual depression is like as he's adding image upon image upon image of what spiritual depression is like. He, he, he puts the capstone of this is exactly what it's like in verse 7. He says it's like you're drowning. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You see, he's getting pounded wave after wave after wave. My family and I, we just got back from vacation in Miami and uh, it reminded me of the first time that I ever went to the beach. I was 11 years old. We went to Puerto Vallarta over Christmas break. And my thought was, I want to go body surfing. So I go run into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, first day that we're there, and here comes this eight-foot wave. And I don't know any different. I think this is a normal wave coming my way. And so I start swimming. You know, this is the part where I swim. And I kid you not, the wave crashed down. My face went into the bottom of the sea, onto the shore, and my feet went over my head. And I am tumbling like I'm being sent through a washing machine. And I end up, you know, about waist feet or waist deep. And I, I stand up, and my first thought was, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Until the undertow comes and you go out for round two. And it's not so awesome. The Korahite is like a man caught in that breaking of the waves. One wave comes, he's towed back into the undertow. Another wave comes, towed back out. Another wave, another tow. Another wave, one after the other, he's going down. He can't keep his head above water. So finally he cries out in verse 9, Why, O oh God, I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Why this spiritual depression, God? It's not explicit in this psalm, but many circumstances can cause us to cry out, to lament like this. News that your adult child has walked away from the faith. That'll cause a soul to lament. News from your doctor of a malignant, inoperable tumor. Marital conflict that doesn't seem to end, a habitual sin that you left unchecked for so long, suddenly it blows up in your face. The infidelity of your partner, a secret that comes out in some way that ruins your reputation. Sometimes you're just lamenting before God and you can't even identify the problem. That's, that's normal. That's actually part and parcel of spirituality. And suffice it to say, the last thing you say in those moments is, yeah, I really feel like I'm living my best life now. I really feel as I'm overcoming every problem and I'm peaceful on purpose. No, you don't feel that way at all because that's not true spirituality. That is a mind trick and it's a false theology found nowhere in scripture, especially not in this psalm. Even the Korahites, these men who stood in the presence of of almighty God, day and night, knew what it was like to lament, to feel like you were drowning spiritually because that is true and honest spirituality. And notice, he's outlined, this, this psalmist has outlined the condition. He's, he's suffering from spiritual depression, anxiety, turmoil. He's outlined what this looks like, but the psalmist also speaks about the cause. He, he, he can identify 
what the problem is, at least in his own heart, what's causing him to lament here. He says the reason he's spiritually depressed is because he has been removed from the presence of God in worship. He's been removed from the presence of God in worship. Remember, like Adam, these Korahites were tasked with continually singing God's praise, playing music to God, singing before the ark of God's presence. But now, look again at verse 2. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living presence of God. And he now asks, I I don't know when I'm going to have the chance to do this again. When shall I come and appear before God? He's been removed from the presence of God in worship. All he's left with now are memories of when he used to worship God. Verse 4, he says, these are the things I remember. As I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, this procession into the temple of God, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, this multitude keeping festival. Here's a man who used to regularly stand in the presence of God, worship with the people of God, lead them in procession, celebrate the festivals, and now he's physically separated from God. He is here, God is here. And it's not just spiritual that this presence has been removed from him. This is actually a literal separation. The Ark of God, remember, is in Jerusalem. But this psalmist, this Korahite, is 95 miles north. You see that in verse 6. He's 95 miles north from Jerusalem. He says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Some scholars believe that this psalm was actually written around the year 587 B.C. when the Babylonian Empire, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, marched down into Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, laid it into dust, burned the temple of God and the ark of God to the ground, and dragged forcibly thousands and thousands and thousands of people into exile to ultimately go more than 900 miles to the northeast to be exiled into Babylon. And at the time this psalm was written, this psalmist, this Korahite, is in captivity, now being dragged on his way to Babylon. He's 95 miles north of Jerusalem on Mount Mazar, which is just over the border of Israel into Syria. And as he's being exiled, his captors, these Babylonian soldiers, are ruthlessly mocking him and taunting him. He's being dragged forcibly against his will. And you see it. They say it two times over and over again. Verse 3 and then in verse 10, he says his captors are saying all the day, where is your God? Where's your God? You, You believe in God? You think your God is going to save you from this? You think God exists? If he exists, why doesn't he save you? Why doesn't he take you out of this spiritual depression? Why are you in agony and why do you feel abandoned? mocking, ruthless, taunting of his enemies. You know, tragedies follow one after the other. It's it's hard to track as many as we have in our culture. But just a couple of weeks ago, there was this wide-scale national tragedy again. And I was reading an article online from some news source. I think it was USA Today. And in the comment section following this article, somebody had posted 
a Bible verse to encourage those who are suffering from this tragedy and said, you know, may God be with you. May God guide you through this time. And somebody immediately under that, replying to that comment, wrote, do you really expect your sky daddy to help? Where was he when all this happened? If God exists, where was he this past week? Ruthless mockery and taunting. This psalm opens book two by this Korahite as he is being dragged forcibly against his will, literally away from Jerusalem, away from the presence of God in worship, and the people are mocking him. Where is your God? Just like Adam, right? Centuries before, because of his sin, was driven from the presence of God east of Eden. This God who he used to walk with, have fellowship with, have fullness of joy and praise before him. Just like Adam, here's this Korahite, centuries later, undergoing the same fate, repeated again, wondering, when will I come and appear before God? It's fascinating, and I I don't say this to mock anybody or shame anybody. But I'm often told by some well-meaning, well-intended people, well-intended Christians, well, I don't really feel like I need to worship God on Sundays. Church isn't that big of a deal. I don't think I really need to go to worship. I can kind of do it on my own. It's not that big of a deal to miss Sunday a couple times a month. And I have to think, I have to think that if a Korahite in 587 B.C., Or if Adam, following his exile out of the Garden of Eden, were to hear those 21st century sentiments, they would be utterly shocked. Utterly shocked by a sentiment like that. They would say something like, are you not spiritually starving? Are you not famished, spiritually hungry? Doesn't it feel like you are drowning before God? I'd imagine a Korahite would say, help me understand something. I was exiled against my will, dragged into exile away from the presence of God, dragged away from the ark and the people of God and worship, keeping festival. And you mean to say that you are choosing to be exiled twice a month? Why would you do that? I don't get it. I'd imagine Adam would say something similar. He'd say, it's no big deal. It's no big deal to be outside of God and his people and his presence. You don't feel like that's a big deal. You don't feel like you need to worship him. Ah, that was the worst day of my life. That was the worst day of my life when I was forced away from the Garden of Eden. The only thing worse, the only thing worse and more spiritually agonizing than being exiled from the presence of God on earth is to be exiled from the presence of God eternally in hell. That is the only thing worse. And you choose to do that week after week? Oh, that makes no sense. These men knew, maybe better than anyone else on earth, what it meant to worship God, to enjoy his presence. They knew tangibly and really what David meant when he wrote, in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. They had tasted it. They had seen it. They knew it. 
They knew what it was like to have God at the center of your life, to have fellowship with him, to be here and for God to be here. They knew what it meant to lament because they once enjoyed the presence of God and they are spiritually depressed because they know what it is like when you are 90 miles north and being dragged further and further and further away from God, exiled. The Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 3 and the Babylonian exile are the second and third closest examples you have of hell on earth. The closest you have. They are the second and third closest examples of what it's like to experience life in exile, to be away from God's presence and his love and his worship and his praise. They are the second and third most agonizing and dark images of what life in hell is actually like. To wonder if you're never going to see God again. To wonder if you will ever be close to God again. To feel abandoned, mocked, taunted. To feel like you're drowning and miles away. That's why Paul, one of the earliest followers of Jesus, when he describes hell, when he describes hell, he speaks of those in hell saying that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. Outside of Eden and the Babylonian exile, there is only one example of hell on earth that is more agonizing and dark, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the cross of Jesus, the Son of God who from all eternity stood in the presence of his Father in an intimate relationship of joy and thanksgiving and praise and adoration, who knew what communion among the Godhead actually felt like. On the cross, God's Son, Jesus Christ, was driven away from the presence of God. Darkness covered the land, we're told, and on that day, Jesus as he's being crucified, endured the mockery and the taunting of people. You remember what the people said? They looked up at Jesus being crucified and said, oh, you who said you were the son of God, the one who delights in God. Oh, okay. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Show us your God. Come down now and we'll believe in you. Where's your God? And all of this, all of this, Because the flood of God's wrath, the wrath of God for our idolatry, the idolatry of Israel, the sin of you and me crashed over him wave after wave after wave. Jesus, in agony, as a soul driven from the presence of God, cried out the greatest lament ever heard when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as he endured hell on earth away from the presence of God. Nothing will cause a greater spiritual depression. And this is crucial. Notice that this isn't where the psalm ends. It's not where the psalm ends. Is this psalmist spiritually depressed? Yes. Has he been removed from the presence of God in worship? Yes. 
But that's not where it ends. In his lament, speaking of the condition and cause of spiritual depression, he also sings of this cure. And he does this repeatedly. Did you notice throughout this psalm, there's this repeated pattern, this refrain, a chorus? Psalm 42, verse 5, 42, 11, and 43, 5, the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He speaks back to his soul and says, Why are you in such angst? You see, the feelings are true, but he reminds his soul of what is more true. His feelings of lamentation are true, but he reminds his soul of what is ultimately true. And he questions his soul, says, why are you in turmoil within me? And he encourages his soul, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In this refrain, in the midst of the dark night of the soul of spiritual depression, the psalmist reaffirms three times what he believes, hope in God. I will again praise him. He is my salvation and my God. Three truths over and over and over again. You know, it's really interesting. Mount Mazar, where this Korahite psalmist has been dragged, it's 95 miles north of Jerusalem. But incidentally, it is the last place that you can see Mount Zion, which overlooks Jerusalem. It's the furthest north you can get. You go any further north, you can't see Jerusalem anymore. So you can imagine this Korahite being dragged into exile, and he sees in the distance Mount Zion, where he used to go and worship God. He probably even sees the the smoke rising up from the temple that's been burned to the ground. This is the last place, the last glimpse of God before he goes into 70 years of exile. And this Korahite looks back and he repeats what he knows to be true. He repeats again and again, even though I've been exiled, even though like Adam, I've been driven from the presence of God, I know this truth, hope in God, I will praise him again. I will. He's my salvation and my God. He will bring me back. He will bring me home. Even though I'm exiled from God now, I know this truth. A day is coming when I will return and worship God again. He will bring me back. And the cure then is the same cure now. Just like Christian on his spiritual pilgrimage to the celestial city, just like that great pilgrimage, even through grief, misery, turmoil, anxiety, fear, sin, Even death itself, we remind ourselves over and over and over again of what is most true, that a day is coming when we again will praise him, our salvation and our God. That is the hope he sets his mind to. In fact, that's the whole reason that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus' first order of business was to reestablish worship among us, the people of God, and God the Father himself. The reason Jesus was exiled from the presence of God was so that we might be brought in, so that he might be cast out, so that we might be brought in. God the Father turned his face away from God the Son so that he could turn his face to you. And on that day, 
when the Son of God returns from heaven in glory and triumph, worship will finally be reestablished. The Son of God will dwell at the center of his people. He will be here and we will be here. And every part of the anatomy of our souls will worship the presence of God. Our laments will turn into songs of thanksgiving and praise and remembrance for the mighty act of God on the cross. That's the cure. Looking back to the cross, but looking forward to that day when he comes again. Hope in God. We again will praise him, our salvation and our God. As Pilgrim's Progress closes, the kid's version at least, Christian and his friend Hopeful reached the end of their journey, and they've endured the seasons where it felt like they were drowning, the seasons where they were in spiritual agony and turmoil, and at last, Christian and his friend Hopeful come to the site of the celestial city itself. And the last pages read this. At the last, Christian came within clear sight of that celestial city where God himself dwelt. It was more beautiful than he had ever imagined. It shimmered as if the buildings were made of pearls. The streets and stairways appeared to be made out of pure gold. The sight filled them with such longing to be there, to be at home, finally. They ran along the final path, their hearts full of hope. But this path led straight to the dark river called death. All of their trials had led them there. He looked for another way across to the celestial city, but there was none. Look how deep the waters are, Christian said. I don't know if I'm going to make it. But his friend, hopeful, traveling by his side, said, we must go in. The king has not failed us yet. He's never failed us. We must trust in him again, as always, even through death. And as Christian entered the water, he began to sink and cried out, Hopeful, all the waves are crashing over me. I can't keep my head above the water. I'm going to die. I'll never reach the city. He was so afraid and he couldn't see the city's light. Hopeful, tugged Christian's head above the water and said, I see the gate. The angels are coming to receive us, Christian. Christian, Christian gasped and said to Hopeful, they're waiting just for you. The king has left me here to drown. I've been such a faithless pilgrim. But then Christian remembered the king's promise. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, and through the rivers, they will never overcome you. And trusting the king one last time, the truth of eternal life in him, he and Hopeful crossed the river, saw the two shining angels calling them into the city, and they entered the pearly gates into the presence of the living God. Hope in God. That day is coming when we again will praise him, our salvation and our God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for leading us this morning as you always do. Faithfully, morning by morning, you pour out your new mercies and we are encouraged by your word this morning. We thank you for sending out your light and your truth to set us free, for giving us living water to quench our souls by your scriptures. 
And God, some of us this morning, we are walking through spiritual depression. Some of us feel like we are miles away from you. Our hearts are filled with grief and fear. So we thank you for being honest with us, for reminding us that we can lament. It's not abnormal. For reminding us once again that our only hope and in life and in death is Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who was exiled from us, exiled for us, and driven from your presence to bring us back to you. Jesus, we ask you now, give us hope. Help us to trust in your promise. You say, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the river, even through the rivers, they will not overcome you. We believe that, Jesus. So give us eyes to see the coming day when you will return and dwell in our midst, when you will turn our lament into songs of praise and thanksgiving. Bring that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.